Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Coming up with the program, the Ontario government has told conservation authorities to wind down activities outside of their mandate. The chair of the Hamilton Conservation Authority will comment on that. A new campaign on TV and radio ads say that cuts to teachers' courses in high schools are the fault of the Ontario government. And apathy is boring. That's the name and the message of a group of youths who are fighting misinformation before the election and getting fellow youths out to vote. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We wanted to do a follow-up on a story that we told you about last week. And uh, that is a, a letter that uh, conservation authorities uh, right across the province of Ontario received uh, from the Ontario government uh, just a little while ago, essentially saying it, uh, they need to wind down activities which are outside of core mandate. That's uh, full of vagaries, I get that. We're kind of not quite sure exactly what that means, and neither are the conservation authorities for that matter. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson, uh, Councillor for Ward 12 on Hamilton City Council, is also the chair of the Hamilton Conservation Authority, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, ask that same question, I guess. Morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Bill. Are you surprised by this letter? Well, we're just puzzled by it. What's it mean? And, and, you know, I'll just, I think you've got it pretty close. The letter dated August the 16th says, I request that you review and consider your conservation authorities' activities and begin preparations and planning to wind down those activities that fall outside the scope of core mandate. And, and so, uh, as you know, last week I was at EMO in Ottawa, yeah. and one of the breakout sessions that I, I attended was MOUs to conservation authorities. And so I attended that, and, and of course, I received this letter from um, Lisa Burnside, the CAO of our conservation authority, well, just about an hour before I went into that meeting. And there was a, a good panel. There's a person from the ministry, um, the uh, general manager of Conservation Ontario's and a couple of municipal representatives. So as soon as their presentations were over, I jumped to my feet and asked them about this letter because I'd also seen a response from the general manager of Conservation Ontario's with a very, very stern response yeah. to the yeah. minister on this. And uh, so my question to them is, what's the definition of a core area? And... Um, Everybody speculated on it. I did speak to one gentleman afterwards who came up to me and seemed to be very knowledgeable. And he said that, uh, well, he, it, it's understanding that it's, it's items that you, uh, conservation authorities do that's funded by the levy. And, of course, um, you know, we do a lot more than, than uh, manage our watershed and, and protect the, the public against flooding. And I, and I think we do a very good job of that through all these cloudbursts of other areas of experience, we haven't had any flooding in the um, uh, Hamilton Conservation Authority watershed. But uh, we also do a lot of recreation. You know, the, the Conservation Authority does own 4,500 hectares of land. We have 12 wetland complexes. We have 1 million people visit us annually. In fact, our, our big problem now in the Conservation Authority is too many people are coming. Uh, we, we got the problems at Webster's and Toos Falls with uh, parking of the vehicles because so many people are showing up. we got staff recommending now that we have to limit attendees at Westfield. And it wasn't that long at Westfield. We couldn't get people to come out there. And, and now it's incredibly popular. We have 145 kilometers of trails and, and uh, 340 boats lifts. We have two recreational lakes, Christie and Valens, but they also act as uh, flood control because we drain them in the fall and refill them during spring, uh, spring thaw. To capture that water, so it's not uh, flooding in the downtown areas or down through the watershed. So, we we do you know what, another thing we do is uh, we provide education to twenty thousand students 
uh, uh, for outdoor education. Yeah, there probably isn't a parent listening to this conversation right now that hasn't been uh, one of the parent chaperones on one of those trips to one of the conservation authorities anyway when okay. the kids were smaller. Probably out to Ballins where there were campsites. I, yeah. I did the same thing when my daughters went to school. So the message I'm trying to put out by explaining all this to you is that we also provide a lot of recreation to uh, the people of Hamilton. But the important message is it costs nothing. Uh, it's all self-funded. Uh, entrances to the Christie Park, the Valence Park, rental of boat slips, you know, the, the uh, access fees now that we charge to go into the Dundas Valley. They all, if you put it all together, what the revenue is and what our cost is to maintain these trails, you know, maintain the parks, cut the grass, it's all covered through user fees. And, and now I think it could be argued these are not core items. But it doesn't cost anything anymore. Well, you know what? I, I could give you an argument that they are. Uh, and, I, I, again, we'll get into the definition in just a second. But, I mean, if, if preservation or conserving, I guess, is the only mandate of conservation authorities, uh, what good is it if you have to have it, there's no opportunity to enjoy it, which is what those people are doing when well, they go to those facilities? Yeah, we, do, we have a brand-new uh, vision and mission and strategic plan, but our vision is a healthy watershed for everyone. But our mission is to lead the conservation of our watershed and connect people to nature. That's what we want to do. We want to connect people to nature, and and we're able to do that without putting anything on the levy through through self-funding through user fees, and and I think it would be terrible if we were forced to shut all that down, because uh, if you look at at uh, the minister's letter, he lists off some core activities: risk of natural hazards, conservation uh, and management of CA-owned or controlled lands. Well, we do that. Drinking water source protection. You know, we're involved in that. Uh, and other programs or services as uh, prescribed by regulation. And, and uh, you know, if they came to us in, in three months, uh, I think there would be significant public pushback if we're no longer allowed people to enjoy Christie's or Valens or 50 Point or Dundas Valley or the Karstlands through our trail network when it doesn't go anything on the levy. But that's the whole problem. It's, it's 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 uh, Groundhog Day all over again, where they put these letters out with no detail, and and as the Conservation Ontario um, media release said, is that there was no consultation with Conservation Ontario or the CEAs about this letter before it was circulated, and we have to ask ourselves how come, you know, because all it's done is open up a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, but as the board of the Conservation Authority, as the staff, I think we have a real duty to our community to continue to offer these recreational facilities. Uh, yeah, I, I've gone to the Dundas Valley a number of times and walked the trails, and it's full on the weekends. Uh, well, no listen, anybody, I, I, when I drive home, I, I go up the Ancaster Hill. I mean, the parking lot there for Two Falls halfway up the hill is always jammed. I mean, there's always cars parked on the side of the road, which is illegal, by the way, but they, they do it nonetheless. But the, the question I've got, and this is the one I asked when I saw this story last week, Lloyd, and I don't know if you got any clarity on this when you're talking to the government representatives, why are they sticking their nose in this? Nobody's asking them for money for this. I mean, this is all self-sustaining. Well, so why why do they even get it? I don't understand why they're even bothering to say anything about this. Well, that's a very good question. Let me answer it this way. In 2018, the province of Ontario will give $220,000 to the conservation, Hamilton Conservation Authority. That's 1.5% of our total revenue. They cut that by, uh, uh, by $80,000 in 2019, so now they're contributing $160,000 a year. Are they doing all this just to save $160,000 a year? And, you know, I, I suspect what they're going to do is... Um, Tell municipalities that 
we're going to transfer a lot of our costs, whether it's public health or, or children's programs or others, over to the municipalities. They're going to download to us, but they're going to say that we're clawing in conservation authorities to reduce your cost to, to fund conservation authorities. And, but it doesn't cost the municipality anything to offer these recreational facilities to our community. So, once again, I'm puzzled. Well, and again, like I say, there's no, there's no rationale for this uh, because like they've cut back already. I mean, and they've made that announcement, and then they come along and say, but you got to do less. Uh, it, it, it's boggling, mind-boggling, really, that they would actually have a mindset like this. The, the first conclusion I would draw from this is these guys really don't know how the uh, Conservation Authority operates. Well, it'd be helpful if you could get the minister on, uh, on your show because I'd love to listen to it. And, and ask these questions of them. Bring bring me on with them, and and uh, let me ask them. That sounds like a great idea. We'll work on that. Um, but uh, I was hoping to get some clarity from somebody in, in government before that, and uh, before this conversation even. Uh, but they're pretty short on details, as you mentioned. And I, 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 by the way, our listeners know I've talked about this before. I sat on the Conservation Authority for a few years back when I was on City Council. Uh, and that there's more to it than that. As a matter of fact, I don't know if they're still in in uh, uh, the the uh, a situation to be able to do this, but when I was on the authority, uh, we actually purchased lands that added to the to the conservation authority lands here because of the, the some of the money that was generated from some of these programs, and uh, that's that's what this is all about. That's what conservation authorities are all about. They didn't ask the city for the money. They didn't ask the government for the money. They did it because of, as you say, attendance at all of these things and some of the other services. So it's it, it you are probably a, a classic example of a self sustaining operation. They should be more people like you and more authorities like that. Well, you know, I mentioned at the start, we do have 4,484 hectares of land. 400 hectares of that has been acquired since 2013, and that's mostly in the East Mountain Karst area. And, and you know, there's been some other smaller acquisitions up around, you know, not small, number, hundreds of acres up around Westfield Heritage Village. But we've now uh, preserved all that Karst community, and, and that'll be Dundas Valley East. Stony Creek probably doesn't like to hear that expression, but... Uh, but it's it's a way of d- defining just the mass of land, of land that we've acquired to protect those karst lands out in the uh, Stony Creek Mountain area. And we're going to be uh, building significant, uh, we've already acquired the land to, to make significant um, retention facilities to hold back water, just like the Beverly Swamp does, to uh, release it slowly after storms to avoid flooding in downtown uh, Stony Creek. And these are all wonderful initiatives, and and you know this is the great work that's been going on for years. And you know we probably don't talk about it as much, but it does come to mind all of a sudden. For instance, when we saw this past spring, the flooding that was going on in different parts of Ontario, and and that is part of the mandate of conservation authorities is flood control, which which was one of the things that got me going right off the bat. Is you know the the day after the Ford government announces they're going to reduce the funding to conservation authorities for flood control, there he is touring Muskoka and Ottawa where it's flooding. Huh, connect the dots here, buddy. Yeah. But they don't seem to do that. But but that's separate and apart from that. That's a discussion and a debate that we sh- should have, I guess, uh, once we get into budget time. But this is something that uh, you and other conservation authorities, uh, it's an initiative that you've started. It's, it's self-sustaining. It's not hurting anybody. As a matter of fact, it's enhancing uh, the, the, uh, the, the joy that we get from conservation authorities in, in cities like this. I, I just really don't know where they're going on this. Well, it's about getting people back to nature. In, in, and letting the public enjoy our, our watershed area. Uh, you know, we've had to purchase this land to protect our watershed, but then you, you, you get an additional bonus by allowing the public to have access to it through a trail system. 
And, uh, you know, just for your listeners, we also we run three flood control dams, 21 stream flow and perception gates, 17 surface water monitoring stations, 39 flood warning and watershed um, uh, uh, warnings issued when we got a storm coming just to have people be prepared. So these flood warnings, they feed right into the cell phone of our, our staff at the Conservation Authority so they can monitor every location in our watershed to find out where the water is rising and where there's potential threats and where we should react. This is, now, this is probably one of the core mandates that they want us to stay in, is the, protecting the watershed, protecting... But, yeah, but you're doing that already. Well, yeah, we are. And, and uh, you know, we have six major streams, streams that we provide this, this monitoring to. So it's... it's um, you know, it's it's a great organization. It has great yeah, and, and look at it. If you were not doing your job properly and you were spending more time on entertainment and, and, and recreational facilities like that, I could see that they might have a bone to pick with you. But the fact is, is you're doing both, and you're bo- doing both well. And and we see the fruits of that. I mean, you, well, you know where I live, Lloyd. I mean, I just look out my front door to see conservation lands. Exactly. And, you know, it's kind of cool to see little bunny rabbits running around the neighborhood when I go to work in the morning. A couple of days ago... I was out on the back porch barbecuing, and I looked down the street, and there's a wild turkey walking down the street, and it just kind of, you know, then just, just deep back into the forest. That, that's, you don't get that if you're going to pave over everything. I mean, this is about enjoying the lands, not just saying, okay, we're not going to let anybody touch them. You know, <laughs> we're going to fence them up next and say you can't go in? Well, we do have a lot of wildlife in, in, in the 30s. You know, people enjoy deer. Sometimes there are problems, too, because they... They get into areas they shouldn't, and we've been able to manage that, particularly in Iroquois Heights over by Scenic Woods, where the deer population got too high. We were able to uh, do winter counts when the leaves are off, and uh, we don't call over there, but uh, um, we had to put a bylaw in place through the city to prohibit people from feeding them because it was tracking too many people to that area, or too many too many deer to that area, which uh, can do damage to uh, owners of homes, but they, they can hurt themselves and the public by getting out on the link and the scenic drive and, and uh, other uh, roadways. So that's all been corrected now just by stopping the feeding. The deer, you know, follow their uh, natural ways and, and move to different locations uh, to be able to, uh, you know, find food for themselves. So, so that, again, another example of the work that you guys are doing on an ongoing basis. Uh, how are you going to resolve this? I mean, you've got to get some clarity from the ministry here. Well, we resolve it. We we have. We've been, the Conservation Ontario has been brutally clear. You need We need more clarity on this, and we need some consultation. So that's next steps. What do you mean by this? If it is just we've got to get non-core businesses that rely on the levy, we're not in that business now anyway, so we're fine. And and so just make that clear to us. And, and, and it just seems so coincidental, too, that they put this letter out right while the aim was going on. And and so are they trying to message something to the municipalities by doing that? But um, well, the worst case scenario is something you just described: is if they're going to download this stuff onto uh, onto the municipal property taxes. I mean, that's going to be somewhat problematic. Well, one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, why they're swinging this big stick at us when they only contribute? Uh, well, it's, now it's down to probably one percent of our budget. It was one point five percent last year. Well, uh, we'll follow up on this as soon as you guys get some answers from the ministry, Lloyd. We really appreciate the time today, though, to try to at least let our listeners know exactly what's going on and why it's happening. Uh, let's uh, let's wait until you get that return letter. Hopefully it'll be sooner than later. Okay, well, thanks for having me on again, Bill. Okay, Lloyd Ferguson, of course, the uh, chair of the Hamilton Conservation Authority. Why are they sticking their nose in there? I just don't get that. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you seen the uh, new ads that are uh, being sponsored by the uh, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation? They wrote 30-second ads. They're on television stations, I guess all the major networks. Uh, Global TV, of course, uh, carrying them, CTV, CBC, and CP24. Uh, and uh, they basically are, are shots, still photographs of uh, empty school hallways and classrooms and uh, warning that changes are going to lead to lower graduation rates uh, because of some of the things that have been acted by the Ford government and uh, tell Doug Ford to stop the cuts. Uh, there are also versions in Cantonese, Mandarin, and Punjabi, so they are definitely trying to get the message out about many of the things that we've talked about on this program uh, in the last uh, six or seven months, I guess, since some of these initiatives were announced. Harvey Bischoff is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about what could be happening. Harvey, thanks for the time. I know it's a busy time for you with uh, what, just a few days left before you're back in the classroom. I appreciate the invitation. Happy to be with you. Well, uh, have they recanted? Has Mr. Lecce said, okay, we were only kidding, we're not going to do any of this stuff? Well, in fact, um, what uh, Minister Lecce said was, no, we're going ahead exactly with what we announced on March the 15th, um, with some claim that people just didn't understand it properly. The reality is it's still their intention to slash one out of every four high school teaching positions um, in Ontario over the next four years. None of that has changed. They're still in the process of cutting budgets that have led to significant losses in support staff who provide all sorts of uh, uh, additional uh, supports and assistance for students with special needs, for example, uh, and those things keep marching forward. Uh, I heard an interview last week, uh, Mitchell, he was on our sister station in Toronto, AM 640. Uh, Peter Sherman was doing the interview, and uh, at that point, uh, the minister said, look, at, he says, I'm open to innovative ideas. I didn't say he had any, but I guess, is he throwing the ball back in your court and saying, if you you guys can think of something that's okay with us, we'll, we'll listen to you? Well, I guess there's two things going on there. One is it's, it's a fairly standard government approach to say we're going to impose austerity measures, we're going to slash budgets, and if you guys are just willing to, you know, sacrifice one limb or another, then we'll uh, then we'll call it a day. Um, the reality is we've gone to the government over the last year and suggested ways that they could find money to reinvest in frontline services. Um, so we've said this bargaining process, for example, is un- unreasonably lengthy and unnecessarily costly, and there were, would have been simple ways to amend it to make it to make it more efficient. They rejected that. We said there are times when school boards are spending a lot of money litigating issues that, that could be done much more efficiently. We've offered an alternative dispute resolution mechanism that would be uh, far more cost efficient for the parties. They rejected that. So when he says he's open to innovative ideas, we've seen absolutely no evidence of that so far. So you've given him that list already then? We absolutely have, along with you know some additional ideas. Uh, they have all been rejected out of hand. Why the lengthy bargaining period? Are they just trying to rag the puck here until you get frustrated? Uh, you know, we're it's it's partly it's it's the nature of this of this uh, the law that we bargain under. So right now, because we couldn't agree with the school boards on what should be uh, negotiated at a central table on behalf of all of our members at once, as opposed to individually at local school board bargaining tables, which will also happen. But having that disagreement, we had to apply to the labor board for a decision. Uh, last Thursday, we had a hearing in front of the labor board and sometime within the next few weeks, I would say we expect the labor board to issue that decision at which point we'll be able to get back to the table and actually start bargaining substantive matters. But you know, we asked the government, please open up the bargaining period at the earliest possible date, which this year would have been March 4th. They waited until April the 29th. 
we said we immediately filed notice to bargain. We said, come meet with us, the, uh, come meet with us at the bargaining table. They waited the maximum allowable 15 days to do that. And when we got into a dispute about what should be central and local, we said, let's solve this quickly and efficiently. And they insisted on this drawn out process. So, you know, I mean, Mr. Lecce's uh, claims that he wants to get to a deal quickly just aren't backed up by their actions at all. Well, and therein lies the frustration because, I mean, we all know anybody that went through that stuff in the mid-1990s uh, uh, with lockouts and, and, and actions, and it's, uh, it's a frustrating experience for everybody involved. And I'd hate to think the government's going down that road here. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's the specter they've been trying to whip up, uh, unfortunately. While we have focused repeatedly on policy, on on increasing class sizes uh, and, and the negative effects of that, on the loss of course choices for students, on this, this mandatory four credits of e-learning uh, over the four years of high school and, and, you know, demonstrating how problematic that is when you make it a mandatory program, um, they've been they've been you know making threatening statements and talking about disruption and so forth and it seems like they for some reason they think it's in their interest to whip up public anxiety and uh, we just think that's unfortunate. Well, the characterization I, I don't need to tell you, Harvey, but the, you know that the government did back in those days was well you know teachers are just a bunch of you know spoiled people they they only work about six seven months of the year anyway and you know they are to work at three o five every day and do whatever they're going to do and they make way too much money anyway. I, I think people are over that now. And I, I get the sense from what I've heard in the last few months on this program anyway that an awful lot of parents are paying attention to what's going on and paying attention to the impact this is going to have on their kids. Well, you know, that's that's absolutely the same impression that I have, and I don't think this government could have been clumsier in, in their approach. But look what they've gone after. They've gone after the things that most affect students' learning. They've gone after class sizes. They've gone after students' ability to choose the courses they want and need in order to pursue their, the, you know, the futures that interest them. Um, there, you know, uh, anybody who has taught or raised teenagers knows that uh, not all of them are cut out for independent, self-motivated learning, like you, like you know, such as e-learning is, um, and they're and they're making that a requirement without any research to support the approach, um, without any other jurisdiction taking a similar approach. So, um, no wonder. Um, Parents and others uh, have caught on to what this government's doing, and they're not happy with it. Well, it's almost as if uh, <laughs> they're, they're trying to tell us here that education doesn't really need teachers. Uh, they, they seem to be redefining your role. First of all, they're going to call the herd, which I, I find frustrating. Uh, but secondly, they're almost putting you in, into, in an advisory role as opposed to a teaching role. Yeah, I mean, that, exactly. And, and um you know, those those of us who within education, but I think the vast majority of people outside of education as well know that it's the face to face interaction. It's the support from the teacher. It's the support from that uh, that support staff person who who uh, you know helps a student uh, reach their potential. Those are what makes uh, those are the things that make schools work. Those are the things that make schools special places. Those are the reasons that everybody can think back to at least you know, or almost everybody can think back to one special educator in their life who really helped lift them up and move them forward. Um, and, you know, I just don't think that same thing's going to happen with uh, overcrowded classes or with kids on computers, um, you know, somewhere off in a room by themselves. 
Harvey, when you finally get face-to-face across the table uh, with the people that are going to be bargaining, uh, what's what can you bring to the table? What issues can you bring up? I mean, they seem adamant. That, look, don't even talk about class sizes because we've already made up our minds. Uh, too bad, so sad if we've had to drop some courses, but, you know, we're trying to save money here. Uh, it, it just seems as if there's, there's not going to be a whole lot of flexibility here to say, well, let's reconsider that as part of the bargaining process. Well, in fact, if you go back to uh, if you go back to ministers, the minister's reannouncement last week, um, he did point to the bargaining table as a place to address some of these things. So, I mean, there's no question. I've been saying it for months. We will go to that bargaining table with proposals that are good for Ontario's students, good for Ontario's education system, and importantly, good for Ontario's future economy as well, because. If our graduation rates go down, um, there will be uh, you know, fewer students available for post-secondary, fewer students who can go into the skilled trades, which is a crying need in this province right now. Um, and so we can't afford to have our graduation rates drop back to the, you know, in the, some num- somewhere in the, in the 60% range as they were back in the Harris years. We need to keep moving forward. So those are the proposals we'll bring to the bargaining table. Um, and for now, we can only, you know, I guess, cross our fingers and hope the government's listening. Uh, well, and they're, they're going to come with an open mind. I mean, I, I get that, that, you know, this is their policy and they're going to stand behind that. That's what governments do. But at the same time, it, it would behoove them, I guess, to actually listen to the people that are on the front line. And those are the teachers in the classroom. It, frontline, uh, frontline educators, uh, teachers and support staff, both, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, uh, students and parents. Students themselves have raised their voices in a way that I've never seen before. It's been an impressive display. I know the Premier wants to claim the unions are behind it. That's utter nonsense. These were, these were student-organized protests against what they immediately recognized as an attack on their, on their uh, learning conditions. Um, parents need to reach out too, but I would say those who rely uh, in Ontario's economy on Ontario's high-quality graduates need to uh, push this government as well. And in the end, governments are are elected by people, and they need to hear from those people that they don't like the road that, that they're going down. Well, we've talked to a number of those students uh, and student groups, by the way, that, that have raised their voices in this situation. And uh, it's, it's actually quite impressive. Uh, and I know you've had those discussions with them too, Harvey. Uh, they are in tune. They know what they want, and they know what they need to get to, the, to that goal. And uh, they feel as if they're getting ripped off now by some of these decisions. And, and I think they're rightly concerned about what their future could be. Absolutely. And, and, you know, getting ripped off is, is a perfectly good way to put it. They are having, um, you know, their future stolen out from under them. If they, don't, if they can't get access to that senior science class because one, out of, you know, one quarter of Ontario teachers are gone four years from now, and that means one, to- one quarter of Ontario's course choices are gone, over 30,000 classes across the province. If they can't get access to those things, their paths to the futures they want for themselves are going to be restricted. And so, I mean, it was most impressive the way they, they, they recognized the impact of these policy announcements um, virtually immediately. They organized themselves and raised their voices. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it uh, gives, you, uh, gives you optimism for the future uh, with kids like that as long as they have, uh, as long as, you know, their, their options aren't taken away from them. 
Well, and I want to put this in context. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about the the high school situation, the secondary school situation, uh, but th- you know, this is this is the education system that we're talking about here. I mean, we've had discussions with elementary school teachers and and uh, administrators. Uh, we've had discussions about the university post secondary uh, and the concerns they've got, and, and they've been targeted by this too. It just just seems like a full frontal attack against the education system here. Yeah, on on the very thing that makes Ontario strong. Um, you know, when you when you look at why businesses locate in Ontario, it's it's partly infrastructure, um, but it's in large part because of the high quality graduates that we turn out. So it's the it's the skilled workers in all kinds of fields that uh, Ontario businesses have access to. So you can attack education, and in the short term, you know maybe you can even maybe you can even save some money. But it's it's in the long run going to hurt uh, Ontario's economy, and that that has an effect not just on students and parents, but you know the uh, the broader Ontario population. Well, the, the two things that, that I think you'll find most people are, are concerned about here that they would say are, are untouchables anyway would be health care and, and education, which is not to say that they shouldn't be, be improved and there's always going to be some modifications that you can make, but it seems as if that's where they're really targeting now to make their cuts. And, and we're, we're going to see this, I guess, uh, well, we'll see it next week when our kids go back to school, uh, the impact that that said. We talked about it a lot. Uh, about what might happen, and now some of that has come to fruition. But, I mean, kind of out of sight, out of mind, I guess, during July and August. But, uh, as you say, you're going to see less courses available. You're going to see fewer people in the hallway, for one. And uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about how this is going to impact students. Absolutely. And, and that's been, you know, that's been our primary focus and what we've been talking about um, since that March 15th devastating announcement is, is what is this going to do to students? What is it going to do to graduation rates? Um, and what's the, what's the long-term effect of that? And, you know, to, to, to take away from kids the potential for them to, uh, to, to reach the, the future that they want to choose for themselves is, you know, it's it's uh, it's virtually criminal uh, to do that to kids. It's it's absolutely going down the wrong road, um, and and you know this is the fallout of a premier who doesn't know the first thing about about government, who made claims about how much money could save just through efficiencies. Well, taking away thirty thousand choices for students in terms of classes that they could have have access to, that's not an efficiency. That's just a cut. Uh, removing a quarter of the uh, caring professional adults in the system, plus the additional support staff who are being lost. Again, not an efficiency. It's just a cut. It's just a loss, and it will it will have negative impacts far into the future. Well, I talked to a couple of teaching assistants at uh, the football game, the Taikai game, a couple of weeks ago, and, and who, by the way, that time, that was like, what, what, 10 days ago, still weren't sure if they had a job in September. I mean, they were waiting to hear back from the board on this. Uh, but even if they do, he made it quite clear to remind me, uh, that that's a, if they, they hire them back, it's a contingency fund that the boards are using these days. So it's one-time funding, and I know the minister's going to throw some money at the boards to try to, to get over the hump on this too, but where's, where's that money going to come from next year? Or are there going to have to be even more cutbacks now because there's going to be a shortfall? There will be cutbacks. If the government does not change course, there will be losses to both teachers and support staff every year for the next four years until we reach that number that they've targeted of an average class size of 28 to 1. Um, What they're calling attrition protection, that's that contingency fund you referred to, they're calling it a contingency protection fund. Well, in fact, it's the opposite. It doesn't protect against 
uh, attrition. It allows for attrition. So each year as, uh, as teachers uh, retire, move out of the system for whatever reason, those positions will not be replaced. New teachers will not be coming into the system and will move from manageable class sizes to utterly unmanageable class sizes over that four-year period. So, I mean, people have to understand the breadth of this and just as to where this is going to go in the long term. I know they keep talking about, well, you may not even notice much of things changing in, in come September, but there's a there's a long-term plan here, and it's it's a rather dark plan. Yeah. So, so I mean, that was I guess that was the nature of the minister's big announcement last week, that things this year won't be nearly as bad as they will be four years down the road. Um, I don't take comfort for that on behalf of students or my membership, uh, and I don't think anybody else should. Harvey, we'll stay in touch. Uh, hopefully there'll be a, a happy ending to this, but uh, we've got a long way to go before we get there. Appreciate your time today. We'll do our best, Bill. Thank you. Harvey Bischoff, the uh, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And, and look, and I understand uh, where people are coming from. I mean, I, we were right in the middle of that back in the mid-1990s uh, when there was, I think, a t- one strike and one lockout, I think it was, uh, in subsequent contract negotiations, and it got pretty ugly. And, uh, you know, there's, I can understand how parents are getting upset because their kids are staying home and they're not getting the education they want, and there's there are ramifications to this. And there are some who think, well, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the McGinney government was way too uh, flush with money, throwing it at the teachers, and that was a problem, too. But look, at this, this is your kids' education we're talking about. And, and we, I think there's got to be a, a, a conversation here with the minister and with this government about the impact that this is going to have. I mean, they've reduced the money that's going to universities. We've already heard that some profs have been laid off. Some programs are not being available or not going to be available anymore. And the same thing's starting to happen at the high school level. I've, I've heard from parents that said, you know, their, their son or daughter had a certain course in mind because this is what they want to do. This is what they wanted to go if they get into university. And it's not available now. And that's a problem for them. And that's, that's going to have an impact on career choices. But the government just seems to look at the bottom line and say, if we can reduce that bottom line, then we're doing our job. I don't think so. I mean, your job is also to provide quality education, the best quality of education for our students. And I, I, I don't see that as, as one of the goals. They can say it all they want, but people are, and governments especially are known by their actions, not their words. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Youth are knocking at the door. We uh, know we're going to the polls, of course, in the middle of October here in the federal election. And uh, youth are grabbing. There are a number of different groups, actually, that are going to be uh, moving towards this very same initiative, uh, basically to inform uh, young people about voting, uh, to talk about what they should and should not pay attention to on social media. We know social media plays a huge role now in elections. Just ask uh, the Mueller report or anything else that we've heard over the last little while. Anyway, one of these uh, one of these organizations is called Apathy is Boring, and uh, Carol Lutfi is with us right now from that organization to explain a little bit about what they're going to be doing. Carol, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. This is a huge undertaking. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, going into this election, um, youth eighteen to thirty four will be the largest segment of the voting population. We're going to make up more than a quarter of the electorate. So it's important that we're providing them with the tools and resources so they can show up uh, in an informed way at this election. Well, and uh, you're also tackling one of the biggest problems, and I'm not quite sure anybody else is aware of how to, uh, to handle this, and that's misinformation in election campaigns. I mean, uh, there's, there's authenticity, et cetera, and you know, there, there can be fact-checking organizations, newspapers, et cetera, that do that. But I, I guess the number one concern 
uh, that a lot of uh, people that are going to be involved in this election are going to have is uh, when you go on social media, uh, you don't know what you're reading is, is true. You don't know who put it out there. You don't know anything about authenticity. It's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe for a bit of context for folks. Um, so Apathy is Born, we're a youth-led, nonpartisan organization, and we're working to engage youth in democracy. So, you know, supporting them and navigating disinformation online is, is one of the many things that we're doing. But we did a study earlier this year which showed that 55% of youth see deliberate disinformation once a week on social media. So it is a, a cause for concern, this election. Do they know it's misleading when they read it? Because that can be problematic, too. Because I, I, I talk to a lot of other demographic groups that look at stuff from the, uh, you know, basically they go to sites when they, they're they going to see stuff that they essentially establishes and, and reestablishes and, and underscores what they already feel as opposed to looking for new information. Exactly, yeah. So one of the problems uh, with the algorithms is that it's serving you content you want to see, not necessarily content that you need to see. And that then acts to create these echo chambers, which reinforce people's existing values perspective. That leads to increasing polarization online and, the, and problematically can spread disinformation. So for us, it's really important that young people are thinking twice uh, before resharing or retweeting something, um, looking at the news, the outlets coming from. So, you know, has this source been fact-checked? Um, and is it eliciting an emotional response? Because a lot of disinformation and misinformation online is there to get you to click on it. Mm-hmm. The more you click on it, the more the algorithm kind of will spread it. Um, so if it's eliciting an emotional response, then think twice before you click on it. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, it, you know, back in the old days, uh, before social media, um, you know, you might see a publication or a newspaper article or hear something on the radio. Uh, you couldn't spread that. <laughs> I mean, mm. you, you could agree with it or disagree with it. You might call into the radio station, like, like a lot of people do on our show, uh, and disagree and, and, and debate that. But all you have to do is click on, on uh, any one of those uh, media platforms that you've talked about right now. The thing goes viral, and uh, it's it's out of the, the, the barn then. I mean, how do you control something like that? Well, that's, that's the problem, right? So we, we actually can't take down all of the disinformation, but what we can do is encourage you know, people to not keep spreading it. So take a t- the time to actually look at what you're reading, look at the source. We, we provide tools for people. So um, there's kind of there's a Google reverse image search that helps you fact check. There's kind of a, an autoplay feature on YouTube you can click that takes the algorithm off. There's page transparency on Facebook. So there's tools we're pointing young people to so that they can really check before they keep spreading this misinformation. Kara, how do you get that message out there? How are you going to reach out to, to the to those demographic groups? Mm-hmm. So at these Boring, we've been doing uh, various forms of get-out-the-vote and education work for the last 15 years. Um, so we have both kind of a digital game as well as a ground game. Um, so online, of course, we're providing tools and resources and accessible formats in, in the spaces where you gather, which for many of them now is online. But we're also on the ground. So we're partnering with community organizations across the country. Um, we train our volunteers, and they go out to festivals, concerts, events, places where youth gather, because if we're waiting for youth to come and find us, then those are likely youth that are already going to be somewhat engaged, mm-hmm. right? So we're really going out there trying to find the youth that are unengaged, the youth that are never asked, you know, to engage, um, to have their voices heard, to show up on election day. Those are the youth that we're really targeting. So we have to go find them. What kind of response are you getting? Uh, it's been great. I mean, I think um, for a lot of young people, getting this message from their peers getting it from other fellow young people um, that are navigating kind of the same digital landscape as them 
uh, has been really empowering. And yeah, we've seen a lot of interest over the last couple of years in terms of the programs we've been running. And we're excited to go into this election and, and hopefully watch that turnout number continue to, to increase. I, I know you don't have any hard data as of yet, but, but anecdotally, uh, as, as you've begun these initiatives, uh, do you find that the, the people are receptive to this idea? They think, hey, that's great, I could use that? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think right now um, it's, it's not something that's provided to a lot of young people. I mean, even just the basics around civic education created in kind of accessible dynamic format, so not something that you're getting in a civics class, um, but actually, you know, being something being communicated to you by your peers in a dynamic way is not something that's that easy to find nowadays. And so Apathy is Boring has really, has really found this niche in terms of being a youth-led organization, creating this content for our peers, and doing it in accessible and dynamic ways. Well, as per usual, I mean, I, I ideally love to see this as part of a, right, a school curriculum, uh, but, but you know, curriculums usually are way behind uh, what students are doing, especially when it comes to social media. Uh, but but mm-hmm. it's, it's an important part because I'm sure that, well, I think I was going to say for that demographic, probably for most demographics now, social media is where they get most of their information. Yes, yeah. So a majority of young people actually get there. We, this came out of the study we, we put out in June. A majority of young people do get their major news and events through non-traditional sources, so social media and word of mouth. Um, so they're not, they're not reading newspapers uh, in the same way. They're not tuning into TV and news uh, channels at all the way older generations are. And so it is really important that, um, that they're thinking about this and they're being critical about where their information is coming from. How, give me a, a bit of a, a barometer of, of maybe some talking points as to what you're asking them to look for, to try to discern whether or not what they're seeing and what they're reading or what they're about to, to, to share in, in some of these cases is actually legitimate. Mm-hmm. So one thing is we, we look at um, so content that's you know, focused on disinformation is there to manipulate emotions. So the first thing we ask people to look at is, you know, does this evoke a strong reaction, whether positive or negative? Because if it's revo- evoking a strong reaction, just from kind of the outset, stop and think twice. Think about, you know, who might have a vested interest in you feeling strongly about the headline you're reading about. And then before you click to, to share this resource, double check the sources. So there's two things there. We're asking people to pay attention to the reactions that they're getting when they're reading content online, and then that they're actually checking sources before sharing it. So those are our, t- our two main asks. And then on our site, so if you go to apathyisboring.com or follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we're sharing lots of videos and tools and resources to continue this conversation. So so basically check this box, check this box before you decide that, uh, A, you believe it, and B, if, if you might want to share this. Uh, and, and that's part of the problem I think a lot of other people have. They don't do either one of those usually. They just, you know, they say, hey, that reinforces how I think I feel about that individual or that political party, for instance. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to share that. Exactly. And yeah. then we got a problem then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's one of the big challenges of social media. You know, I mean, it's, it's creating space for people to communicate and share content in a whole new way. But with that come a lot of challenges. And this is one of them. Well, with that in mind, I mean, the stories we've heard, for instance, about the last U.S. election uh, and what hackers did there and got involved in and, and how they used and abused Facebook and other social media platforms, you, you wouldn't be surprised by that, obviously. It's, it, it's, you know, you, I, I get the sense that a lot of people are going to say, well, I told you so. Of course they can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, something that's good um, going into our election is uh, the government put together 
um, groups to address this going into the election campaign. Uh, so there's there's a group based out of McGill, the Mac School uh, School of Public Policy, that's doing research and studies on disinformation and misinformation spreading during our election campaign. Um, so we will, I mean, right now, we don't necessarily know the results of that. We'll know that during the campaign as it's rolling out. Uh, but it's something that we're looking at as a country in a way that I don't necessarily think the states was looking at in the same way uh, when they went through their presidential election campaign. Well, we do know anecdotally anyway from CSIS and others that uh, that even four years ago we probably had some of that activity going on in the Canadian election. I don't know how extensive <laughs> it was, but I mean it has an impact. So uh, this is this is a very timely program and a very timely initiative that you're doing here, Carol, because you know that that something is a, is probably going to happen here, and the, and it's it's really user beware, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of strength with social media channels and, and there's a lot of challenges and this is one of the challenges. And so we're really encouraging youth to be attentive this election season, to be talking to their peers offline as well, to be seeking trusted sources. So, you know, Apathy is Boring will be one of them, um, but also Elections Canada's website and, and other places, formal news outlets, so that um, they're going into this election campaign feeling confident about you know, how they will be engaging uh, on, on Election Day. Are they engaged? Does that demographic, uh, do, they, do they move towards politics? Are they, they are up on the issues? Do they understand the, the impacts and what everybody's saying? Mm. Yeah, so actually we've done a lot of research on this. Um, what we've found is that it's not that youth are apathetic and unengaged. It's, it's not an attitude problem. So they do care about issues that affect them, issues that affect their communities, their families. The question is that it's an action problem. So what they're choosing to do is they're choosing to gather and to be heard in informal spaces, whether that's protesting or social media groups or, uh, you know, getting involved with their friends in, in kind of various community organization settings. But they're not necessarily engaging with our formal institutions like voting or, you know, having um, ongoing dialogue with your elected representative or showing up at a town hall. And so for us, it's really about bridging that gap between how they're choosing to be heard. So it's not a question of them not caring or not being informed about various issues. It really is a question of how they choose to be heard on those issues. I, I, I've sensed that anecdotally, too, and, and obviously we've seen that, too. If you uh, just talk to anybody at a university campus or anyplace else like this, they, they seem to be more issue-oriented, though, than politically issued, uh, mm-hmm. oriented, aren't they? You know, yeah. I, I don't know, you know that they actually commit to a political party or to a candidate, but they, if there's an issue, the environment, for instance— uh, or anything like that. They're passionate, very passionate about that. But uh, I guess what we have to do is, is, and what you're trying to do uh, with, with Apathy is Boring, is channel that, that, that passion and to the saying, look, at this is the way you have to express that through voting. Mm-hmm, exactly. So it's about celebrating all the various types and forms of engagement. You know, so, you know, if you want to protest, great, go and do that. Um, but don't not vote, you know. Also add voting to your repertoire of tools that you can use to be heard on an issue you care about. The other thing I would say is we're talking about a cohort of over 7 million people. So, you know, not all youth are the same. Not all young people care about the same issues. Um, they have very different motivations and lived experience. And so it's really about identifying um, the different strategies to mobilize different groups of youth depending on what motivates them. But that demographic, the one that you're targeting, the one that you're working with these days, uh, is large enough that it can actually determine political agendas and how political parties are going to approach elections. Because uh, you, you can swing an election one way or another. 
Yeah, yeah. So we will make up more than a quarter of the electorate this election. You know, that's there's a lot of power in the youth vote, um, and so it's important that both young people recognize that, and that you know parties and candidates recognize that, and that they're also doing the work of going out and speaking to youth and encouraging them to vote. It, it needs to happen on both sides. Well, and to that end, uh, it's it's pretty obvious to us now too that political parties understand the power of social media. Uh, and, and the power of reaching that demographic. And they're starting to use social media more and more to try to get their message across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. They are. And so that's, a, that's uh, a good thing in some ways, because what we've seen pretty consistently over the years is that candidates uh, will reach out to older demographics because those are the folks that tend to vote. And so, you know, they're looking to mobilize that community so that they can get elected. Um, and have not focused that much on young people because historically you haven't voted at the same rate. And so they don't necessarily want to spend their energy on a non-voter. Um, instead, you know, for them it's more strategic to be targeting voters. So it is, um, you know, going to the places where youth are, such as social media, you know, intentionally reaching out to youth, whether that's on campuses or door-to-door, uh, is a really important step that I think candidates and parties need to be taking this election. Well, and what you're telling us here today, I guess, and this is a message for the political parties and for the candidates to understand, is that uh, in, in the past, that low voter turnout in that younger demographic is not because they're not passionate about issues. It's because those people in the politics uh, arena, political arena, have not reached out to them. I mean, you've, you've mm-hmm. got to go to them. Exactly. And that's what you're I mean, doing, and now they're starting to do that. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, we've we've done studies in Canada, and we've also... Um, looked at studies in the U.S., which have actually shown that just simply asking a young person to get out and vote in, in a personal, meaningful way increases their likelihood to do so by 10%. And so that's why we as an organization prioritize face-to-face engagement, um, young people asking other young people to show up on Election Day, and that's exactly why candidates should be doing the same. Yeah, I mean, you've seen some of those campaigns, you know, they'll have celebrities, you know, hey, you should get out there and vote. And I, I don't know that that has much of an impact on anybody, but if you reach out to the social platforms where people are spending an awful lot of their time these days, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to resonate a lot more clearly, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's where we see face-to-face engagement having quite a large impact, right? So a, a real conversation with a peer um, where you can engage in a dialogue around, you know, the topic of voting, that's the best way to, to make that ask of a young person. Well, especially because, like I say, that seems to be where the battles are going to be fought. It was not too many elections ago, I can recall, and I've covered a few of them in my time, uh, where you'd see a candidate or a political party say, oh, they're using social media. Isn't that a novel idea? Uh, (laughs) Now, if they don't do it, they do so at their own peril. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You need to be on social nowadays. And and let's face it, I mean, I know we're talking about the younger demographic, and that's who you're, you're focusing on an awful lot of the time. But uh, statistically, we know that uh, just about every demographic use, uh, every demographic group, rather, is using social media more and more, including seniors and a lot of other people like that, too. So this is a, this is a, a program that's actually going to resonate way beyond uh, the target goal that you've got here. Mm, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, we're focused on 18 to 30 because there's just so much we can do as a nonprofit. Um, but absolutely, if this benefits other Canadians, then, then that's great. Carol, where can they get more information about what you're doing here? Yeah, so go check out apathyisboring.com. So our website has lots of uh, tools, resources, information about us. Follow us on social media, which is at apathyisboring for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen, this is a great initiative. Congratulations on this. And I, I, I want to wish you luck because if you guys are successful, I think everybody's going to be successful because we're going to be a more informed voting public. And uh, this Thank is one of the so great much. steps in doing it. Good luck with this, yeah. Carol. 
Thanks so much. Take care. Nice talking with you today. Carol Lofty, of course, with Apathy is Boring. Uh, check that out. And uh, if you see them at one of the booths, I don't know, they said they're going to be at festivals. Maybe you got Supercrawl. I don't know. I'd like to see that. Maybe put a booth up there and some of the other things that are going on around town and get the word out. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.